in the beginning. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, quit talking. A uh, couple more quick announcements before I get into Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, today we have something called Discover Grace. Uh, if you've not been through Discover Grace, I encourage you to do it even if you've been at Grace for a long time. But if you're new at Grace, uh, this is a great way for you to understand who we are, uh, how we do ministry, why we do ministry, the way we do ministry. Uh, so it's today at 3 o'clock. It includes a, a meal. Um, so if you could pre-register, that's pretty important. Uh, if you want to even slip out of your seat and go to the information counter right now and say, I'm coming to Discover Grace, I'm fine with that. Um, but you can also just go online, register. But we need you to register now, not at three, so that we know how much food to buy. I have no idea what we're eating, but we do have to make sure we get enough for everybody. Again, this is just a, a great way for you to get to know us, us to get to know you. Uh, the other thing I just want to uh, hype a little bit is this Saturday is the next men's breakfast. I don't know if anybody recognizes this guy, but our very own Kevin Dupree is going to be speaking. So it should be high energy, if nothing else, but it'll be great. Uh, they do a great job, serve a great breakfast, but encourage you, young, old uh, guys, bring your sons, bring your friends, and show up for the men's breakfast. It's going to be great. Okay? So the last, uh, uh, last Sunday, something uh, I think very noteworthy happened. Um, apart from our Easter numbers, we had a record number of children in children's church. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, it's a great indicator of, of a healthy church, of a growing church, um, but it also creates some challenges. And one of the challenges is there's only so many children that will fit in any given room. And so when we get to the point where the fire marshal says, that's all you can have in a room, we have to find a way to find another room. And, and so there's a couple things that, are, that, that I want to just say. A, we need more volunteers in children's ministry. So if you love kids, if you have kids, uh, and you call Grace your home church, engage by serving and serve the children. We have more children than we've ever had, which means we need more workers than we've ever needed. But the other thing, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. Uh, please be here on time. It is almost impossible for us to shift and make changes 15, 20 minutes into the service. If everybody shows up on time, then we got time to say, okay, let's move some kids here. Let's open a different room. Um, this is a great problem to have, right? Yes. Right? But we need you guys to step up and be a part of the solution as well. So uh, getting here on time and not 15 minutes late, not that anybody's ever 15 minutes late coming to church. <laughs> But anyway, preach it. All right, that's, that's the whole sermon this week. All right, you got it. It's, it's super cool. I, when they told me about the numbers, it just really warmed my heart. I love the fact that we have so many young families coming, and that is the future of the church, so let's serve them well. All right. Uh, we are teaching uh, Genesis 2 and 3 today. 
Uh, the most frustrating thing for me in teaching any book of the Bible that's 50 chapters long on Sunday morning is the amount of stuff that I cannot talk about. It's just impossible to talk about everything that's in these, although I'm going to try today to talk about a lot of it. Um, there's just always more than a sign. And so I just want to say this, engage in Genesis beyond Sunday morning. If you really want to get what, you, what God has for you out of this series, uh, buy a journal, uh, be reading in Genesis, taking notes, uh, come to the going deeper in Genesis that happens on Tuesday nights. Um, there's lots of ways for you to connect deeper with Genesis, but I'm just encouraging you, if this is all you're getting, you're missing out on a good portion of Genesis. So we're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3. So if you want to grab your Bibles and start at Genesis chapter 2, there is a Bible under your seat if you didn't bring one. If you are at home, as Karen said, thank you for joining us. Uh, we would love for you to have a Bible in front of you as well. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can keep the one that's under your seat as a gift from us. If you are at home and you don't own a Bible, come by the church and we will give you one. One, uh, I just was informed also this week that we are short about 250 Bibles because we've given so many away. And I think that's another really cool thing, isn't it? Yeah, we're putting Bibles in the hands of people that need them. So that's a really awesome thing. So anyway, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the two chapters that I'm going to cover, chapter 2 and 3. Uh, I thought uh, that, was, that was a child screaming, but I thought somebody was whistling for my sermon. I was like, good. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> whatever I want to believe is fine with me. Anyway, wow, this is going to be a fun morning. Uh, this is a more detailed look at the creation story. Uh, and I was just talking about this with some friends up there. The, when I read Genesis and, and the, the author of Genesis sort of keeps repeating themselves or going back, I envision a great storyteller who tells the story and then says, no, no, wait, there's more. Like, like, no, pay attention. Let me, let me give you some details. So, so he tells us about the six days, and then we get to Genesis 2, and all of a sudden we're talking about some of the things that he already talked about in Genesis 1, but he's just adding more color, more details. And if I could say anything about Genesis, is Genesis is meant to paint a portrait of something wonderful, something beautiful, something amazing. And if you see it for what it is, this portrait of God's creation, it's easier to read. What I will tell you is that, that this is not a timeline in Genesis 2 and 3. If it were, it would be contradicting Genesis, contradicting Genesis 1. Uh, but it's just this beautiful uh, picture. And this is where we have the creation of Adam and Eve. We have the creation of the garden. We have the creation of the forbidden fruit. And we have the fall. That's all of what we're going to cover in chapters 2 and 3. And what these two chapters do is they, they clearly establish the need for Jesus. Okay? So the gospel, which is the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his reconciling us to God... The gospel only makes sense when you see it through the lens of Genesis. Let me say it again so you know how important this series is. The gospel only makes sense when we see it through the lens of Genesis. So what you believe about God and creation, it matters. What you believe about God's reason for creating humankind matters. What you believe about God as your provider matters. What you believe about sin matters. What you believe about our inherent sin nature it all matters, and it all puts the gospel in perspective. All right, a couple other things before we read. This is a historical and poetic look at the origins of mankind. It's not folklore. It actually happened. Adam and Eve are real 
They are as real as I am standing on the stage, as you are sitting in your seats. Um, the interesting thing is the Christian and non-Christian scientific community uh, almost unanimously agree that DNA testing proves that all humans are related to an ancient mother and an ancient father, right? They don't necessarily believe in the creation story, but they know DNA evidence shows an Adam and an Eve. This is anthropology, if you will. It's telling us what it means to be human, what it means to be human physically, what it means to be human spiritually, socially. Uh, so there's a lot for us to learn. Um, what I'm hoping that comes out of the message this morning is, is that you'll see that the story of Adam and Eve is repeated over and over and over in each of our lives. So there's a lot of application for us in the message today. All right, I'm just going to read portions because I can't read both chapters in the amount of time that we have. Uh, I'll point towards the portion I'm going to read, and then I'm going to give a little commentary after I read. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 4. And because I'm jumping through, I'm not going to ask you to stand this morning, but we're beginning at verse 4. It says, These are the generations of heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted in the Garden of Eden, in the east, and there were, he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you would give me wisdom of how to navigate so much incredible scripture. I pray that the words that I speak that are of you would, would also land in fertile soil like the seeds we just read about, that they would grow and they would produce beautiful fruit. We ask that uh, each person, myself included, would leave this room different than we came because the living God has spoke a word. We know from our study of Genesis with just a word, everything changes. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we have this more detailed account of, of Genesis 1. And, and in Genesis 2, I just want to say it one more time. You cannot look at Genesis 2 as a timeline or a scientific explanation. If you do, you're immediately going to have two conflicting stories. So it's not written uh, for that purpose. It's written to elicit in our mind this beautiful picture of the creation of a perfect place the creation of humankind being placed in that perfect place, this place of paradise. So it's, just, it's getting the readers to understand God's marvelous creation. So God creates paradise, places man in paradise. And look at verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. So Adam was given the responsibility to tend to the garden. His work was intended to be fruitful. His work was intended to be enjoyable. 
And uh, I don't know if you guys know who Brother Rob is, been one of our, our missionaries for a long time, ministry partners for a long time, and he taught us a while back about this word work. And, it, and the word work that's found in Genesis 2 is found 289 times in, this, in, the, in the Old Testament, but it's more often translated worship or serve. The same word, work, is translated worship or serve. And the point is, in my opinion, really profound. Work was and work is intended to be an enjoyable act of worship. As a matter of fact, I would say this entire sermon could be titled, It's All About Worship. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, as you're going to see, is all about worship. And worship is a natural outcome of seeing God's hand in everything we see, everything we do. Worship happens naturally when you recognize that God has invited you into his purposes and his plan. And your work, your work should be worship. But it requires you seeing your work as a gift from God and an opportunity to participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Everything you do, actually, whether it's work, raising your kids, cultivating meaningful friendships, going to school, serving in your church, playing a sport, serving your community, serving the children in children's church, it can all be an act and it all should be an act of worship. We are created... Remember, we're in Genesis, the creation story. We are created to worship in all things worship. Look at verse 7. It says, The Lord God then formed the man of the dust to the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The original readers of this would have automatically, from the, from the language being used, pictured a potter forming clay on a potter's wheel. They would have pictured an artist making his art, and when the art was complete, when, when the, the form was exactly the way the artist wanted it, the artist breathed into the form and brought life to it. The breath of life could be translated the soul of life. If you woke up this morning, and it appears most of you did, the breath that you have, the life that you have, is a gift given by God to be stewarded. The point is, just like Adam, you were formed. You were created. The psalmist says you were knit together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not the process of an evolutionary accident. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God who takes delight in the goodness and the beauty of everything he created. So when God created you, he looked at you and he said, it is very good. Another important observation about the creation of humankind wouldn't be complete without this. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This little word right here, helper, uh, has been used throughout the centuries to uh, demean, uh, to oppress, to describe something of a subservient nature to the creation of women. 
Uh, it's been used in a similar way to me saying to one of my grandchildren, hey, why don't you come be my helper as I wash the car? Uh, for the record, they're not very helpful. <laughs> right, but, but it makes them feel good. And, and that is absolutely not what this passage is saying. Throughout the rest of scripture, the same word is to describe not women, but God. Psalm 22 says, he, may he send you help from the sanctuary. Psalm 30, 20. For the Lord God is our help, same word, and our shield. Psalm 70. Oh God, you are my help and my deliverer. It's the same word. Women, uh, do not let anyone ever tell you that you are not strong and mighty. When Adam was given a helper... It was, it was because God knew that man could not thrive or survive without her. And this truth goes far beyond marriage. We need women and all of their strength and all of their gifting and all of their wisdom. Men, let me talk to you. Amen. Men, your wife was not created to be ruled over. They were called to co-reign and co-rule with you. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. Look at verse 16 and 17. Genesis 16 and 17 say, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And the million-dollar question is why? Why did God create the forbidden tree. This is a subject of lots of books, dissertations. There's lots we could say on it. But what you need to know is that the forbidden fruit represented a boundary. Right? It could have just been, been just as easy. He, God didn't say this, but God could have said, look, you can go anywhere you want to go, but don't go across the river into this region. Don't go to this area. That would have been a boundary, right? And, and God could have established any boundary he wanted, but this was the boundary that God established. Do not eat from this particular tree. The tree or the boundary, listen, had to exist for there to be true, authentic love. The tree, the boundary, is a gift. It had to exist for there to be true worship. Authentic love, authentic worship are, are inextricably linked. You were created to worship. True, authentic love requires a choice. If you don't have a choice, it's not love. It's either oppression or, or some kind of coercion. If you're forced to live with someone, if you're forced to love someone, then you don't actually love them. There has to be choice for there to be authentic love. The forbidden fruit, listen, this is a whole different way for us to see it. The forbidden fruit was an invitation, not a restriction. The boundary represented an opportunity to worship. Here's the application. Our response, if we can throw that up on the screen, our response to, uh, and, and our, our responses and our behaviors would be far more God-honoring if we saw God's boundaries as invitations and not restrictions. Every boundary is an opportunity to choose love. 
Every boundary is an opportunity to choose to honor God. In turn, every boundary is an opportunity to worship. Authentic worship requires obedience. What if Eve had said, man, this fruit, it looks good. It, it, it's beautiful. Do you know what the passage says? It, was, it looked good for food and it was pleasing to the eye, right? So what if she had held the fruit and, and she just gave voice to both of those things? It looks good, right? It, it, it's beautiful, but what if she had, you know, that's temptation, right? But, but what if she had said, I want God's presence and his blessing more than I want this fruit? What if she actually saw the temptation as an opportunity to show God her love and her affection and her devotion? Every temptation, listen church, this is so critical. Every temptation that comes your way is an opportunity to worship, to choose God in the desert, right? Jesus did what Adam and Eve didn't do. He was tempted, but he chose to honor God. I love it. Whenever I talk about this, somebody wants to send me an email. I say something about, like, look, Jesus was tempted. Dude hadn't eaten for 40 days, and he had the ability to put together his own buffet, right? And he was tempted, right? That's what the passage says. But he did not sin. He did what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He chose to worship. And listen, you can't sin and worship at the same time. Right? Part of our obedience is part of our worship. So Adam, or, or Jesus did what Adam and Eve didn't do. And here's what I want you to see from this passage. Satan's scheme to get us to uh, choose anything other than God, it, it always happens really in the same way. First, he plants a seed of doubt. Look at what the passage says. I think it's verse 1 in chapter 3. Did God really say that? Is that really what the Bible says? Like, is, that, is that really the boundary that God has put in place? So first it's is, is doubt in the word of God, and then he plants doubt in the goodness of God. He basically says to Eve, look, God's holding out on you, man. Like, no, man, if you eat this, you're going to be just like God. He, he doesn't want you to be like him, man. He, He's holding out on you. What, what, what you. what you want is better than what God's telling you. So he has us doubting the word of God. He has us doubting the, 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 the goodness of God. Satan says, God knows when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Just so you know, his scheme is no different today. Right? He, he, he's, he's on a frontal attack to attack the Bible. Does the Bible really say that? You're going to be much happier if you ignore that boundary. Right? You deserve to be happy. Do what you want to do. And, and I'm not even sure the Bible really says that anyway. He says, you're missing out, man. You're missing out on more life, more fun. Those boundaries are so restrictive. They're so oppressive. Be your own boss. Do your own thing. But the boundaries and scriptures are there to protect us and they are opportunities to choose God and to worship. 
Specific example. Choosing not to have sex outside of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, marriage. Choosing not to is choosing to worship. So I'll ask the question again. What if we saw the boundaries as opportunities? As opportunities, not as restrictions. They're there to protect us, but they're also there to give us a chance to express our love and our devotion to God. The God who formed us and breathed life into us. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he wanted to make sure that we understood what he was saying. So he also said it the opposite way in 14.24. He said, whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. Do you get the idea that, that obedience and following the boundaries that God puts in place and worship are inextricably linked? The other part that we see from Genesis 2 and 3, and stay with me here, is that any time we ignore the boundaries, isolation, chaos, and pain always follow. So after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, so as they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, they recognize the presence of God. And look what they do in verse 8. The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. They isolate themselves. Here's a universal principle. The way you relate to God and the way you relate to people are always the same. If you are hiding from God, you are hiding from people, right? If you see God as an object to be used and you see people as an object to be, the way you relate to God, the way you relate to people are always the same. And when we choose to play outside of the boundaries, we will isolate ourselves from God and from people. I journey with a few friends who have struggled for a long time with addiction. And I always know that they are in a dangerous place when they stop returning my calls, when I can't find them. Why is that? Because they're isolating themselves. So Adam and Eve hide, but God pursues. God calls them out of hiding, and he asks a series of questions. And those questions are intended to help them understand their own hearts. The first question he asks is, where are you? It's not like he didn't know, right? He is God. But, it, but it's both a question of his physical location, but just as importantly, their emotional location. They admit that they were afraid. They say they realized they were naked. They're talking about both physically naked and spiritually naked. And God asks, who told you you were naked? He asked him, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, it probably goes without saying, but God's not looking for clarity here. He's, he knows the answers to the questions. He's using the questions to get to the heart of the matter. This is another great application for us. When you have that sense in your spirit, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like you know, when you hear the question in your, in, in your heart from God, Stop. Pay attention. God's trying to get to the heart of what's going on inside of you. When Meg and I sold the business a long time ago, even before we sold the business, God made it 
crystal clear that I was supposed to go into full-time ministry uh, in the church setting, right? So uh, we sold the business and there was a waiting period of trying to figure out what we were going to do next. And uh, on more than one occasion, I began to write a business plan. I had a few different ideas, uh, but I would begin to write a plan and I'd get it all written out. And while I was sitting at my desk writing this business plan, I would hear God just say, what are you doing? Well, I'm writing a business plan. Check this out. Look how much money we can make for the kingdom of God. <laughs> you say, where are you? They're like, oh, yeah. The questions were meant to get to my heart. Like, where are you, Doug? What are you, what are you doing? Listen to the questions that God is asking. But I want you to see something else in this story. This is the, the good news, Right? God pursues. God finds Adam and Eve in their hiding before they ever repent. They they haven't made things right. They didn't come begging God to show up. God goes to them and God brings the questions and those questions are signs of his love and his desire to be reconciled and to bring the relationship back together. But I also want you to see something else. Amidst God's redemptive plan, There's a high cost. I've been saying this for almost a year now at Grace, but sin never reaps a profit. It always has a cost. Scripture says the wages of sin is death, and it's not just physical death. It's death of dreams. It's death of ministries. It's death of relationships, death of intimacy with God. So look for a minute at the chaos that follows the sin. I love what, uh, I think Allie's the one that said this, but it might have been uh, Stacey. I can't remember which one when they taught together, but, but I believe this to be true. This is not prescriptive, this is descriptive. Sin is now a part of the world and this is how it's gonna play out, right? It, it's sort of, this is what you've brought upon yourself. So pay attention, right? So to the woman he said, because you have done this, this is verse uh, 16, chapter 3, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bear forth children. Uh, I recognize the fact that it's always dangerous for a man to say anything about pain and childbirth. (laughs) And I'm already on sin ice here. Uh, But this is what I want you to hear. So I grew up in a, my my mom especially was a name it, claim it person. You know what that means? It means exactly what it is. Name it, claim it, it's all going to happen for you, right? A uh, little out of balance. Um, but she used to always say to my sisters, well, you don't have to have any pain in childbirth because that's part of the fall. And Jesus came and he reversed the curse so you can have pain-free childbirth. I will also tell you that none of my sisters had pain-free childbirth. So I'm not sure what the, what the application here is. But, but as I read it, I wonder if, if we could pray that God would remove the multiplier effect. Because if you look at it, it says, I will surely multiply your pain and child. Okay, I'm not going to say any more about childbirth or pain because. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do not speak of something you know nothing about. Yes. All right. He also says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Some translations say your desire will be to control your husband. The desire to control uh, two people having contrary opinions, uh, both of those have the. Uh, result of creating tension in the home. And I think that is an inherent nature of the fall, that there will be tension in the home. It's, it's an inherent part of, of being 
married. There will be tension. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Tension will exist. So what's the point? The point is, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to relationships, we better learn We better learn to navigate conflict in a way that honors God or you are in for a long, tumultuous journey. The other chaos that ensues is the abuse of power. And he shall rule over you. You get what he's saying? Because of sin, there's going to be conflict in your marriage and he shall rule over you. Over you. The abuse of power in this world is 100% the result of the fall. Racism is a result of the fall. Classism is a result of the fall. Tribalism is a result of the fall. Wars and rumors of wars, everything that's happening in Israel right now is a result of the fall. Any sense of superiority over a person or persons is the direct result of the fall. And the passage says, because of sin, he shall rule over you. Men, we are not called to rule over our wives or our children or our coworkers for that matter. There is this profound moment in scripture where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, there is a leadership way in the world And there is a leadership way in the kingdom. And he says these two leadership ways could not be more different. He says the rulers and the Gentile, in their leadership way, they lord over, right? And they see people as as objects to be used. That's the world's way of leadership, to rule over and to see people as objects to be used. And then he says, but not so with you. Look, he's talking to his disciples. They were leaders, right? They were tasked with leading one of the greatest movements, the greatest movements of all mankind, of forming the church. They were leaders. He says, not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the leader, that's all of you, as the one who serves. So I want you to see there is positional and spiritual authority in this. Someone here is identified as a leader, but the kingdom way is to follow the example of Jesus that we see in Ephesians, who being and always equal with God, didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a man, not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant that would go to the cross to reconcile all men to God. This is one of the clear boundaries that offer us this incredible opportunity to worship. Don't lord over others. Mutually submit to one another. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. If you want to know what would transform every marriage in this room, every friendship, every church in the world, it's the not-so-with-you way of leadership. If we would mutually submit to one another, serve one another rather than use people, if we understood the concept of downward mobility, look, this does not make sense in the corporate world, 
but it works. Look what Jesus said to, or what God said to Adam. He says, because you have done this, cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's basically saying work's going to be hard. Sometimes I have to remind myself, this is hard because I live in a fallen world. But just because work isn't hard, is hard doesn't mean it can't be worship. It is going to be harder. But it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a painter, an accountant, a business owner, a, a stay-at-home dad, a, an auto worker, a student. You can choose, even when it's hard, to make everything you do an act of worship. Let me say it one more time because it's important. Anytime we ignore the boundaries, we refuse to worship and honor God, isolation, chaos, and pain always follow. But the good news is God makes a way. Here in chapter 3, we see the first messianic prophecy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent at this time. And between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says, he shall bruise your head. The he there is Jesus. And you shall bruise his heel. Amidst the fall, the greatest promise is ever given. In essence, think about this. He's saying to Eve, I know you messed up. But out of you will come the Savior of the world. So I'm going to just summarize what we've talked about. Boundaries are opportunities to worship, to love, and to honor God. Boundaries are opportunities. Every one of us travels outside of the boundaries. The scriptures are clear. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and despite our sin God pursues us and God calls us out of hiding scriptures say the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord I want to leave you just with a a question maybe invite you into an opportunity where is God making a boundary really clear to you? Where are you bumping up against a boundary? And, and I think part of the question is, can you see it a little different as you leave this morning? Can you see it as an opportunity to worship? It's not a restriction. It's, it's not a burden to carry. It's an opportunity to honor God and to worship God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the people in the room who who are struggling, who are feeling the draw, who are feeling the temptation. I pray that shame would be erased. I thank you that we have a great high priest in Jesus who knows what it's like to be tempted, yet did not sin. Lord, I pray that you would bring courage and strength to each one of those people who are bumping up against the boundary. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a church that worships in spirit and truth. That we would live lives that honor you and in those moments when we mess up, that we would hear your call to come out of hiding and that we would receive the grace and the mercy that you offer. For your goodness, we say thank you. For the gift of your son, Jesus, we say thank you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The group that met this morning heard a lot. And I'm going to share just some of what they heard said. That there is uh, someone in the room, uh, said a lady, who's dealing with some confusion. Uh, That there's a college student here this morning that's experiencing some challenges to their faith and what they believe Um, someone is feeling very insecure. We would love to pray for you in that. Uh, We just heard some things about physical healing that, uh, sorry, let me. Someone's struggling with a sudden loss of hearing. Um, Someone is struggling with their past and someone is having eye issues. So uh, if any of that resonates with you, if you feel like you uh, have something physical or spiritual or a little of both, We have people that would love to meet down here and pray with you. If you're online right now, you can call the church anytime during the week, and a pastor will pray over you as well. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Come back next week as we jump into Genesis chapter 4.